if we turn to this text in Mark, I want to pray for us. And help me to preach, oh God, that you might be present in the preaching of the word, that the word might come to us. Or how are we to believe in the one who died and rose again unless we hear from him? And so by your spirit, may we hear from him this morning. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we do pray. Amen. Well, it has to be one of the most famous scenes in all of um, film. Luke Skywalker is in the midst of a lightsaber duel with Darth Vader. And in the midst of that duel, Darth Vader looks at Luke and says, you know, Uh, He says, I know about my father, you killed my father. And then uh, Darth Vader says very famously, and even if you've never heard it, you probably know the line, you know, I am your father. So it's like the biggest revelation. And apparently they kept it from the whole cast until that moment, right? Uh, They told uh, Darth Vader, the guy who played Darth Vader, the voiceover, like right before he went out. And... um, And the interesting thing about that revelation, that moment of revelation, is that it puts Luke Skywalker in this kind of crisis of self-identity, right? At that moment, he goes, no, no, and it's really bad acting. I went back and looked at it on the YouTube. It was like awful. It was horrible. But it's almost comical to watch, so you should go watch that sometime. Um, Not right now, but he's like, no. No, no, you know, but he's, he's in this kind of, these throes of this crisis of, of self-understanding because he's like, wait, if that's who you are, then who am I? And I don't understand myself anymore, and what's going on, right? It's actually a common trope. It's a common theme. It appears over and over again where the revelation of someone who someone's related to, the revelation of a character, throws someone in this kind of identity crisis. Who am I? What's my purpose? It's a theme that's, um, that's, you know, that's been building up in the blacklist, right? Uh, Raymond Reddington and uh, Elizabeth Keene. It's a theme that we see in um, This Is Us uh, with, uh, with Randall and under, learning who his dad is and about his dad. And then he's like, I think I'm a, a hidden musician. And he starts like playing music. It's a theme that happens over and over again. And it goes all the way back to Mark. See, in Mark, like a Wagner leitmotif, this question keeps coming to the surface and confronting the disciples. And the question is, who is this man? Who is this man? And with each new revelation of who Jesus is, each new self-revelation of who Jesus is to the disciples puts them in this kind of identity crisis, this crisis of self-understanding. What does that mean about me and who am I in relationship to him? And we see this play out once again in the text before us, where the revelation of Jesus' identity causes a crisis of self-understanding in the disciples. Well, let me set the scene for us. 
Jesus is up on a mountain all by himself praying, verses 46 and 47. And the disciples, they are out at sea. It's about the fourth watch of the night, which means sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. I can just see the sun coming up over the horizon. The disciples didn't intend to be on the sea for that long. They thought that they would have reached their destination by now. But we learn that verse 48, the wind was against them. And they just couldn't make headway. They had been straining at the oars all night. And so there they are on the sea, tired, frustrated, exhausted, alone, and probably really scared. We've seen this before. Two chapters earlier, remember? They're on the sea and they're in the midst of a a great storm. And just like before, Jesus sent them there. You know, sometimes, sometimes it feels like Jesus takes us through the same kind of circumstances over and over again. Do you ever feel like that? Like, this again? I do. Well, anyway, they're in the same circumstances, but not exactly the same. See, we need to pay attention to the details. This is not a malevolent, this, this is not a storm that's caused by a malevolent, evil, demonic force. This is simply the fact that the winds are against them. The circumstances are not working in their favor. The winds are against them. It's it's a traffic jam when you're already late. It's a no smoking sign on your cigarette break. And I'm not going to call it ironic because that would be an improper use of a literary genre, misapplied, okay? So if I called it ironic, I would have to put sick, and not like the kids say today. I mean like Latin sick, right? Uh, It it, it is. It's It's what we call a bad break. It's when the circumstances of life just aren't going in your favor. You know what this is like. It's getting sick on your wedding day, right? It's... It's like, um, it's like when you've had no problems with your car forever, and then all of a sudden, and you've seen no police officers forever on the road, and then all of a sudden, you notice that your blinker's out. And then you see your first, the first police officer that, that you've seen in, like, months. And what happens? He pulls behind you and gives you a ticket. And you're like, ah, I couldn't even get home. It's a bad break. It's a bad break. It, It's the toil and the tears, the sweat and the struggle of everyday life in this world that's under the curse. And it's everyday life. You know, one of my favorite singers is Van Morrison, and Van Morrison has this song, and he says, you know, when it's not always raining, there'll be days like this. When there's no one complaining, there'll be days like this. Well, my mama told me there'd be days like this. And I wonder if Van Morrison's mama also told him that most other days it is raining and people are complaining and the plane gets grounded and the flight attendants are confounded. That's what happened to me about a year ago. Because some days the winds are against you and some days they're against you more than others. We were going to my grandfather's funeral in Memphis, Tennessee and flying through Dallas, Texas As we were on our way through Dallas, Texas, our plane was uh, grounded in Amarillo because of storms over Dallas. 
Amarillo is not a booming metropolis, okay? And other flights, much larger flights, coming from L.A. and other places had been grounded before us. And so the little airport was just packed. And it's around, it's around dinner time. And we're kind of hungry, but we've got a little girl. She's four at that point, and I know she's going to be hungry. And so uh, we go to the one cafe in the whole airport, one cafe, and they're out of food. And so we're sitting and waiting, and we got like a little bit of something. We scrounged up something. And then we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and we think we're going to get on the flight. And then finally, you know, at 10.30 that night, they say, you're not going to fly out tonight. You're going to fly out tomorrow. Okay? So we kind of go to our hotel. We get to our hotel and check in at midnight. They tell us that we're going to fly out the next morning at like 7 o'clock, and we have to be at the airport at 5.30, which means we have to like leave our hotel at 5, which means we have to get up at 4.30. So that's not a lot of sleep, right? So we get there into the airport, and then they say, oh, no, you're not leaving. You're not leaving at 7 or 7.30. You can't leave till 10.30. All right, great. And there's that cafe the one with the really awful food. They do have some more food now, but it's really bad. And the lights are so bright. It's those like fluorescent lights, and it was cold like because it's Texas, and it's the summer, and they have the air conditioning pumping. And so you can't sleep. You're just freezing. And then finally I thought, I can get some solace and some, a cup of coffee, a good cup of coffee, because I remembered that I brought a bag of coffee in my carry-on with my AeroPress and my hand grinder. So I was ready. So I got my coffee out. I'm hand grinding. I get everything set up. This is kind of like my one oasis. Mind you, I'm supposed to be conducting my grandfather's funeral the next day. I thought I was going to have a day like, to get there and prepare and figure out everything. I'm supposed to be uh, preparing this ne the next day. So I got my little, one little oasis. I grind the coffee. I get the hot water. I pour it in. I do everything. And then I look down and I realize I have no filters. Like, things were just not working out for me that day. The winds were against me. It wasn't evil. It wasn't quite evil. It wasn't quite sinful. It wasn't quite demonic. But... The circumstances were against me. I wonder if you feel like that today. Well, if you do, I want you to know something. Jesus sees you. He sees you in your pain and he sees you in your struggle like he saw the disciples that day. Look verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Jesus sees you, he sees you're in your struggle, he knows your struggle, and he comes to you, he comes to your aid, like he came to the disciples' aid. Look, verse 48, and he came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples see some figure in the sea, they're forced to ask this question, what or who is this? And there are a couple of options one option is that this is a ghost. That is the option that they go with. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they're terrified. They cry out. That's one option. You know, if you don't, if you, 
if you don't, if you see something and you can't come up with any rational explanation for it, any kind of natural explanation, any normal explanation, then you have to relate it to the transnormal, right? So they think it's a ghost. But there is another option, you know. It's an option that was presented in the Old Testament readings today. The psalmist says, Your way was through the sea, O God. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. Job says that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Isaiah writes, the Lord made a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. The prophet Habakkuk says, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. You see, it's a theme that's played out over and over and over again in the Old Testament. That God alone treads the waves. That God alone walks on the sea. See, there are two options. There's a ghost, and then there's God Almighty. And the disciples, they choose a ghost. Why? Why do they think Jesus is a ghost? Why don't they recognize him for who he is? Why do they jump to that option rather than the other option? Why do they think he's a ghost and not God? Shouldn't they know? Shouldn't they recognize him? Well, I think one reason that they don't recognize him is maybe a reason that we often don't recognize him. Because the winds were against him. The winds were against them, like when the winds are against us and the circumstances of life, and we just have our heads down straining at the oars. And because we have our heads down straining at the oars, we don't actually stop and recognize the work of God in our lives. Or maybe because we have our heads down, straining at the oars, we haven't taken time to investigate the claims of Christianity and who Jesus is and what he has done. We haven't read the Gospels. We haven't done a thoroughgoing historical investigation. We haven't actually gone to, to, to check out the claims of Christianity and to see if they're verifiable. We haven't looked at the eyewitness accounts. So we're just too busy. Because, you know, when we're too busy and we don't stop and we don't look up, and we can miss him. And that's a tragedy. But maybe another reason is not simply that the winds were against them, but it's because, you know, Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. They don't expect to see a man walking on the sea. They don't expect for Jesus to come to them in that way. And maybe, maybe that's our problem too. Maybe we've boxed in God and we've said, well, God, if you do exist, you have to appear in this way like this. This is how you have to come to me. And when Jesus explodes our paradigms, we, we can't make sense of it because we've boxed him in too much. Maybe that's it. Maybe we said, well, if God is real, and if he is there, and if he does love the world, then he wouldn't reveal himself at a particular place at a particular time through a particular people, and he wouldn't come and live this kind of peasant's life and then die and rise again. But what if he did? And what if it's true? 
See, see, maybe we need to reframe our expectations or be open, open, open-minded. That's something that people say is a value today. Let's be open-minded about how God could appear to us. Maybe that he does appear to us in the face of a Jewish carpenter in the first century. Well, Jesus wants them to know that he is not a ghost. Verse 50, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, that makes for really smooth English. But it obscures the revelation that Jesus is making about himself. A better translation, a more straightforward translation would be, Take heart, I am, no fear. Take heart, be encouraged, be of good cheer. Be confident, be courageous, cheer up. And it's, um, it's a message that a lot of people want to hear, and it's a message that is out all around. I, I remember 1988, and it was the feel-good song of the year. I was in the back of my mom's Astro minivan. You know the one I'm talking about. And we were driving around town, and all of a sudden, uh, Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy comes on. And we're all like bobbing and so happy. But even, even as an eight-year-old tyke, something struck me wrong. I started listening to the lyrics and I was like, there's a dissonance here. Because in the lyrics he says things like this. Your landlord says the rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> what? Ain't, ain't no place to lay your head. Someone came and took your bed. Don't worry. Be happy. And I'm thinking, wait, what? It's like, and, and then at one point, I'm just thinking like, okay, why? I mean, that's a groundless statement. And then at one point, he has the audacity to say, if you worried, I give you my number. Just call me. I make you happy. And I'm like, How? I mean, if somebody called him who, like, has been evicted, what's he going to do? Buy him a home? If somebody stole their property, what's he going to do? Get it back? Or is he, gonna, is he going to actually be their defense lawyer? I mean, what is going... See, it's a groundless claim. And it's not just Bobby McFerrin who makes it. It's all around. Cheer up. Things will work out for the best. I was in an exercise class where the teacher said, the universe is conspiring to work out in your favor. Do you believe that? It's like, how do you know that? <laughs> do you know the person who controls the universe and has he told you that? Like, how do you know that? What is the ground of that claim? You see, a groundless, trite, feel-good claim can go so far when you don't have real problems. But when you have real problems, like if you really were evicted and kicked out on the street and you don't have anywhere to live, Bobby McFerrin's song doesn't help so much. And that's why it is of infinite importance. It is of infinite importance that the one who says, take heart, is the one who walks on the water. That's why it is of infinite importance that the one who says take heart 
also says, I am. I am. When Moses met God at the burning bush, and God's revelation to him did not fit his expectations, Moses asked, who are you? What is your name? And God says in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is my name forever. Jesus doesn't say, take heart, it is I. Jesus says, take heart, I am. I am the one who flung the galaxies into existence. I am the one who upholds the molecules by the power of my word. I am the one who has numbered your days. I am the one who has marked out the boundaries and the habitations of every person and every nation in the entire world forever. I exist from everlasting to everlasting. I am the one who moves mountains without their knowing it. I am the one who stops the sun from shining. I am the one who stretches out the heavens. I am the one who performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. I am from everlasting to everlasting. I am without beginning. I am without end. I can do all things, and no purpose of mine can be thwarted. So take heart. I am. No fear. Take heart, I am, no fear, because I am your covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And I not only am, I will be. Which is probably a better translation of that. I will be your God. I am your covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. I am the one who made Sarah's womb fertile when she was as good as dead. I am the one who created Israel with my miraculous power. I am the one who rescued Israel from Egypt by parting the Red Sea. I am the one who took down the walls of Jericho. I am the one who spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. I am the one who provided manna in the wilderness. I am the one who shut the mouths of the lions when Daniel was in the lion's den. I am the one who directed Cyrus's heart like a water course. And I am the one who was born as a babe in Bethlehem. And I am the one who not only treads on the water, I tread your sin. And I cast it into the sea. So that you may know that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the, the flames they will not overcome. Take heart, I am, no fear. No fear. No fear of failure. Because I give you the victory. No fear of humiliation. Because I promise you my reward and my praise. I will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. No fear of unrealized potential. Because I have destined you to rule as a king and a priest forever. No fear of being obsolete because your name is written on my hand. And no fear of nature. I provide manna in the wilderness. 
I uphold the molecules, I walk on the storm, and no fear of death, no fear of death, for it is the last enemy, the great enemy, and I have overcome. I hold the keys of death and hell, and I have overcome. Jesus says, I am. And the wind ceased. Take heart, I am, no fear, and the wind Cease. Jesus, he reveals who he is. But what does that reveal about the disciples? Notice that in verse 51, when Jesus shows his power over the creation and gives them the self-revelation, we read that they were utterly astonished. They were utterly astonished. Now, that's not wonder and awe. That's being baffled. They were utterly astonished, but they shouldn't have been utterly astonished. They don't get it, but they should have gotten it. For Mark goes on to say, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves. They did not understand about the loaves. I mean, hadn't they just seen Jesus take five little loaves and feed 5,000 people? Well, that's just the men. Hadn't they seen all that Jesus has done? Hadn't they seen him raise Jairus' daughter? Hadn't they seen him stop the woman's bleeding who was hemorrhaging? Hadn't they seen all that he had done? And still they're astonished, still they don't get it? How could they have been so blind? I mean, you would think that greater revelation and greater signs and greater miracles would, read, uh, would lead to greater self-understanding and greater understanding. But it doesn't. How could they have been so blind? How could we be so blind? How could I be so blind? I was utterly astonished this week. I sat down with a student for lunch, and the student uh, allowed me to hear his story. Uh, came to Westmont through a random set of circumstances and providential events. Uh, Grew up in uh, a home where he didn't hear about the claims of the gospel. Came to Westmont, didn't really understand the claims of the gospel. But through lots of providential events, um, was invited to church. Started coming to church, started reading the Bible, started reading Romans, started reading John. Came to church, started reading the Bible, and his eyes started to be opened. And he said, this is true. Who Jesus says he is, is true. What the disciples recorded is true, and if it's true, it changes everything. And I just sat there, utterly astonished. Because... For some reason, even though I've had countless theology courses, even though I've studied the Bible for countless hours, even though I've heard countless testimonies, even though I know about God's providence and how he leads, even though I know that of those the Father has given Jesus, he will lose none but raise them up on the last day, even though I know that 
all that the Father has given him, he will draw to himself. Even though I know all those things, even though I know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, even though I know those things, somehow I'm still utterly astonished. I think, when will I ever learn? The key for my home and the key for the church, they look the same, and they're on my key ring. I've gotten this new thing now that separates them very far apart because for at least four years, every time I walked up to this building, I would put in the wrong key. Every time. And I would try to open it, and then I'd have to put in the other key. And I thought to myself, like, you'd think by now, after four years coming here pretty much every day, often coming in multiple times a day, you would think that I would get it. You would think that I would learn. You would think that it would become clear to me. You would think I would just pick it up. You know, sometimes I think that's how I am with God's work in the world, like those keys. It's like God continues to reveal his faithfulness, his power, his glory, and each time it throws me into this crisis of self-perception because what it uh, because and self-understanding because of what it reveals about me is my faithlessness, my dim-wittedness, the fact that I don't get it. I still don't get it. Why can't you believe, Kyle? You're a pastor. What about you? Over and over and over again, God shows himself faithful year after year, decade after decade. And yet there's still fear and anxiety, and yet we still don't recognize him. We don't recognize him because we're stubborn, because our hearts are hard, but their hearts were hardened, verse 52 concludes. But that leaves me with another question. Why did they record this story? I mean, it was the disciples who was with Jesus that day. One of them was Peter. Peter is supposed to stand behind Mark's gospel. That's what seems very clear, evidently clear to me. So this is Peter's own personal account of the life of Jesus. Why would Peter record this story? You say, well, because it happened. Let me ask you a question. Do you reveal all your kind of dim-witted moments just because they happen? Just because they're true? I don't. I do embarrassing things like trip on myself, and uh, I look around real fast to see if anybody saw it. I know nobody else has done that. And then you kind of keep walking and make like nobody saw it, and don't tell anybody about it, and you're like, right? I mean... You don't reveal your embarrassing moments. Why would they reveal their embarrassing moments, even if they're true? Why would they reveal their dim-wittedness, their hard-heartedness? Why would they reveal the fact that they still didn't get it, especially when they're trying to convince an audience that, you know, Jesus is God, and then they're like, but we thought he was a ghost. Wouldn't they say, like, it was undisputable, no one could doubt? Why would they do that? I think they do it because even though they're dim-witted and hard-hearted, and even though they're thick-skulled, they're still his disciples. 
who he continues to pursue and he continues to use and he continues to love. And a couple chapters later, Peter said, no, you will not go to the cross. And Mark records that looking at his disciples, he looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Get out of the way. And I love that little line, looking at his disciples. Because Mark is trying to let us know that he went there for them. And that's good news. That's great news. That God still loves us, still uses us, still pursues us, is still faithful, even when we are faithless. And his love is bigger still. So take heart. He is. Don't fear. Amen.